Well, there's one thing we don't like at First Baptist, that is musical talent. We're very thankful for all of our musicians this morning. Uh, welcome to First Baptist. We're glad that you could join us in worship. My name is Will Face, and I am the youth pastor here. And so I have the opportunity to preach to you from God's Word this morning. Uh, pastor Cliff is in Zambia once again. We ask that you would continue to pray for him as he serves over there and teaches at the Bible College. Um, he will be back with us in a couple of weeks. Next Sunday morning, you have the privilege of listening to uh, Lamar Holly. Many of y'all probably know Lamar personally. He was a pastor here at First Baptist for many years. He's going to be coming in and filling in in the morning. And then Jared will be preaching uh, this evening. Uh, so we invite you to come back to worship at 6.30 this evening, and then I'll be covering next uh, Sunday evening as well. Jonathan leaves for England this Thursday, so we pray that you will continue to lift him up in prayers as well. If you need anybody at the church office, give Jane a call because we might be out of the country. Um, half the staff is gone, so you're leaving it into the hands of a children's minister and a youth pastor. So when you drive by, if you see flames, call 911. Um, but... Uh, they trust us, that or they have no one else. So um, we are uh, thankful to be here this morning. Uh, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bible, if you have one, to John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in front of you in the pew. You can feel free to grab one of those and look there, or it should be on the screen as well for you this morning. So several different options for you as we look at God's Word. Over a couple months ago, I began a new series looking at the seven signs of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. And we began looking first in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water to wine. We then followed that up with chapter 4, where Jesus heals the official's son. And so now we arrive uh, to John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, and we look at the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. We begin to look at this and we begin to see in these signs, these signs that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. They are meant to point us to the truth and the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. And so John tells us in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he gives us a purpose statement to his book, to his Gospel, and he says that he's recorded these signs and the things of Christ in order that we might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you continue down in verse 31, you see that John says not only that we would believe, but by believing in the Son of God, we are given life in his name. And so this is where we're looking at this morning. This is what we want to focus on, Jesus, the Son of God, the signs that he gives in this gospel in order to show us who he is as the Son of God. If you've ever read through the Gospel of John, you'll notice a couple of transitions that take place. The first chapter of the Gospel of John is kind of uh, an introduction to the book as a whole. It gives us kind of a framework of where John is going in his Gospel. And then in chapters 2 to 4, you all of a sudden see this kind of curiosity and interest in the person of Jesus. The crowds and the Jews and the people around Jesus become interested in these signs and these miracles and wondering, who is this guy? Who is this person that can turn water to wine? Who is this person that can heal sickness and save us from death? But then there's this in interesting transition that takes place in John chapter 5, which we're going to look at this morning, and it's that, that what starts out as curiosity and interest turns to persecution and opposition. That at one time, the crowds and the people begin to follow Jesus, and they're excited about what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, we take this turn. There's this shift where all of a sudden, the excitement turns to opposition. It turns to persecution. And so this is where we are this morning in John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You may have noticed something a little peculiar in the passage if you are reading from a different translation than I read from. If you read from the ESV or NIV or NASB or CSB, likely you uh, do not have verse 4 in your Bible. If you paid attention closely, you would see verses 1, 2, 3, 4 is not there, and it goes to verse 5. If you're reading from the King James or New King James Version, you would have thought that I skipped a verse. Now, very briefly, I want to give you just kind of an idea of what's taking place here. We're not going to talk too much detail on it, but this is basically what's happened. In the oldest and most numerous Greek manuscripts that we have, that we've uh, discovered, verse 4 is not there. And so what has happened is translators rely on the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts to translate our Bibles into English. It's where we get our scriptures from. And so these texts from these manuscripts are uh, compared to each other and they're checked for variations or any different wordings. And so what happens is when we look at the original text and we look at the amount of original text, what we find is that, that verse 4 is actually not there. Most scholars and translators, as well as I, believe that what happened was verse 4 was a marginal note that was added to the text in order to explain the text rather than being a part of the original writing. And so most modern translations that you may see or the one that I'm using this morning in the ESV omits verse 4 and they drop it down into a footnote at the bottom of your page. And so if you were to look at the footnote of verse 4, what you see is that it kind of explain explains the, the man's response to Jesus in verse 7 where he says that many believe that there was some mystical event taking place in the water. And so the footnote of verse 4, what happened was that was added and then it eventually got dropped into the text and then it was removed as we look at the original manuscripts. What happens is there's this belief that there's an angel coming and stirring the water up which calls the, these miraculous healing powers. Now the point of the text is this, it's not to focus on the water, it's not to focus on this mystical event, instead it's to focus on Jesus. 
It's focusing on his sign and his miracle. And so with that in mind, we want to continue in the passage this morning. If you want to look at that more, you can come talk to me later. But uh, that is why we aren't uh, seeing verse 4 in this passage as we look at it. So if we look back at chapter 5 and we look at those first few verses, what we'll notice is that we we see the context of this healing. Jesus has moved from Galilee in chapter 4 to Jerusalem. He enters into the city by the Sheep Gate, which would have been an opening in the northeast wall of the city near the temple. And so he enters into the Sheep Gate and he goes to a pool called Bethesda. Bethesda is translated House of Mercy which is very appropriate considering the amount of people sitting around seeking mercy and seeking some miraculous cure by this pool. And so he comes to this pool and he sees this multitude of invalids, these people that are uh, blind and lame and sick and paralyzed. And he spots this particular man who had been sick for a very long time. And so this is where the, the sign begins to take place in the Gospel of John. And so what I want us to do as we walk through this passage is I want to look at four characteristics of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that we can draw from this passage. And these are those four. First, we are going to see the omniscience of Jesus. Secondly, we are going to see the compassionate grace of Jesus. Thirdly, we will see the omnipotence of Jesus. And then fourthly, we will see the authority and deity of Jesus. If you're feeling lost, don't worry. We're going to look at each of those as we move along through the text. So first, the omniscience of Jesus. Among the many things that I do not know about in life is automobiles. When it comes to my vehicle, I know how to put gas in it. I know how to crank it up, and I know when something isn't working. And when it comes to the extent of what's not working, I have a lack of knowledge to that. Last week, I had to head up to Atlanta for a meeting for our summer impact camp for our youth, and I discovered that as I reach about 55 to 60 miles per hour in my Jeep, it begins to shake uncontrollably. Now, uh, some of you may find that as a good thing. It might, if you had a baby in the car, it might let them go to sleep. But for me, I was shaking back and forth going down the interstate, wondering if my car was about to fall apart. And then on top of that, of course, I realized that my windshield wiper stopped working. And so they kind of had a mind of their own. I'd turn the switch, and they'd kind of go super fast and then stop in the middle, and then sometimes they wouldn't work at all. And so I realized, okay, I've got a problem. I need to find a solution. So I made it back to Dublin in one piece. And, of course, uh, with my lack of knowledge, I looked to the best place that I could for information about cars, Google. And so I went to Google, and I typed in what I thought was going wrong with my car. And if any of y'all have done that, you've realized that there is a range of possibilities of what could be going on. And so I read something as simple as, well, you just change your windshield wipers to don't get in the car, it's going to explode. And so realizing that I had no idea what was going on, I took it down to the Jeep dealership and asked them to take a look at it. And so I asked the professionals, I said, look, this is what's going on. Please take a look, figure out what's going on, diagnose the situation, tell me what needs to be fixed, what's broken, and let's get it back to normal. And so after a few days and uh, an unfortunate amount of money, uh, my Jeep was fixed and back in my driveway. And so I hopped in my car Sunday to drive to church, and like every Sunday lately almost, it was raining. And so I said, okay, well, this is good. I get to put my new windshield wipers uh, to the test. And so I turned my switch and nothing had changed. And I was told by the professionals who knew everything that they had fixed the exact same thing or the exact thing that I needed and I had given them money to thank them for the service that they had provided for me. So I called the Jeep dealership and I said, hey, I don't know much about cars but I can tell you one thing, it's not fixed. 
So I took it back down. They diagnosed the situation again. They repaired what was actually needing repaired, and they returned it to me, and now I have wipers that work. Now, this is the point of the story. I should have gone to Bubba's. <laughs> but the actual point of the story is this, that all of us have knowledge of certain things in our life, and there's also things in our life that we don't have knowledge of. And oftentimes, the so-called professionals who should know the things that are going on don't know those things. But this is the difference. In this passage, we see that unlike us, Jesus knows all. That he knows our situation. He knows what's wrong. He knows what's broken. He knows how to fix it. He is omniscient. And so this is a big word. It's all, all that it means is that he is all-knowing, that he has all knowledge, that there is nothing that we experience or that is in this world that he does not know or understand or can fix. And so what we see in this passage is this omniscience of Jesus. Jesus sees this man at the pool. He knows exactly what is wrong with him before he ever explains his situation. He doesn't have to Google. He doesn't have to second guess. He doesn't have to wonder what's wrong. No, he knows what's wrong with him. He knows that he's been sick and likely paralyzed for 38 years. He knows that he was unable to get himself to the pool. And so Jesus knows this man's situation. And the amazing thing for us this morning as well is that he knows your situation as well. In his omniscience, in his knowing ability, he knows your hurts, he knows your fears, he knows your suffering, he knows your needs. He knows it all. David would say in Psalm chapter 139, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He goes on to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. You see, there is a difference between us and Jesus. We do not know everything, but yet Jesus does. And so we look to him for knowledge. And so as we gather today, we gather with many struggles, with many temptations, with many sicknesses, with many hardships. And we can take comfort in the fact that we know that Jesus knows each and every one of our situations. That no matter what is going on in your life, he is aware of it. There is nothing that he does not know that's going on. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. Not only is he omniscient, but also we see the compassionate grace of Jesus in this passage. We find him extending this compassionate grace to this sick man. And so Jesus goes where the helpless and outcasts are. He goes where most people probably wouldn't want to go, where there are multitudes of invalids. And so this man doesn't exemplify it for us any uh, saving faith or any specific faith to usher in this healing. There's nothing that he's done or said or, or acted upon in order to uh, get Jesus to, to heal him. Instead, Jesus seeks him out. In Jesus' compassionate grace, he looks to this man and seeks him out and offers healing. This man has been rejected. He's been overlooked, overlooked by others. And so Jesus looks to him and he asks this important question. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And somewhat surprisingly, rather than telling Jesus yes, rather than affirming the need for healing, he kind of begins to give excuses. 
He says, well, I can't get down to the pool, and, and when I try to get down to the pool, others pass by me, and there's no one to, to put me in the water when the water begins to stir up. He begins to feel abandoned and overlooked. He begins to feel hopeless, as if through his suffering, as, as if through his many, many years of suffering, he becomes negative and pessimistic. He really begins to think, I, I, maybe I can't be healed. But yet, this is the thing. Jesus isn't looking to put the man in the pool. Jesus is looking to heal him by his word. Jesus isn't looking for some miraculous cure. He's looking for the trust in knowing that Jesus can, with a word, heal him. And so, through this compassionate grace, we see that what is impossible for man is not impossible for God. That Jesus can do what others cannot and so Jesus sees this man, he sees this need, he sees that he's 38 years of, of suffering and there's no one to help him and yet he offers healing that he desires. And so the truth is this morning that Jesus heals the broken, he heals the needy, he heals the helpless. We draw from this truth today as well that we realize that in, him, in his omniscience, he has knowledge of our situation and that in his grace, he extends it freely. He knows our greatest need this morning, and he extends his grace from a bloody cross. He saves us not because of anything that we could do or say or act upon on our own or accomplish. Instead, he does it all from a heart of grace. John would say earlier in his gospel in chapter 1, he would say from his fullness, from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We have all experienced this compassionate grace that Jesus gives. So we see the omniscience of our Savior. We see the compassionate grace of our Savior. Thirdly, we see the omnipotence of Jesus. In college, I somehow convinced my parents that I needed a motorcycle. And after many, many months of begging and pleading and whining and saving, somehow I convinced them that I needed a motorcycle. And so in college, I bought a motorcycle at the University of Georgia, and I rode it around campus. And after a few months of having my motorcycle, and after being warned that they're very dangerous, and the chances of you getting hurt is very, very high, and not listening to any of that, and uh, driving my motorcycle on campus, I was headed home one day to my apartment, just two miles down the road, not even going very far, and I was sideswiped by another driver who was distracted on her phone and, uh, and ripped all the ligaments in my right ankle. And uh, I was more furious that my motorcycle was messed up than I was my ankle at the time, but uh, later that changed. But uh, what I realized was after ripping my ligaments, after going to the hospital, and after assessing the situation and diagnosing the problem, they realized that I was going to have to have reconstructive surgery. And so they would go in, and I'll spare you the details, but they would go in and reconstruct my ankle with uh, modern technology and medicine, and they would repair that and hopefully get it back to where it needed to be. But this is the thing, when I went in for surgery and got out of surgery, I wasn't healed yet. They went in and, and reconstructed my ankle, but then I had to be in a cast, and then after I got out of the cast, I had to be in a boot, and I had to stay on crutches, and then after that, I had to start physical therapy, and after physical therapy, I had to start strengthening and, and stretching exercises at home, and then not only was my ankle recovering, but then I was losing muscle in my legs from not walking on it, and so this long process began of recovering, of being healed. And so it took time, it took work, it took effort. But yet when we look at this healing in this passage, none of that took place for this man. Jesus heals him with a single 
command. And so we see here the instant healing power found in Jesus. He is omnipotent, which is another word for saying that he is all-powerful. With a single command, he tells him to, to stand, to take his bed, and to walk. And this man doesn't hobble along. He doesn't stagger to stand up. He doesn't look for assistance. No, he immediately stands, and his strength is regained. And he walks away in wholeness. And so there's no additional rehabilitation or recovery time needed. No, instead, it says in verse 9, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus' omnipotence heals him. His power and ability gives him complete restoration. And so we begin to see the power of Jesus in his word in this passage. We see that Jesus is Lord over sickness and suffering, that he has the ability to heal. When he speaks, that sickness departs. And so he not only seeks physical healing for this man, he also desires a spiritual healing as well. We see later on that he says, get up and take your bed and walk. And then later he finds him and he says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I think what he's referring to here when he says that nothing worse may happen to you, I think he's referring here to the final judgment that is to come for us all. I don't think he's referring to the fact that something worse uh, physically is going to happen to him. It's hard to imagine what could be worse than being paralyzed and sick for 38 years. But if you look at chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus speaking to the Jews, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. And so I think Jesus is saying here, look, I've healed you physically. You are well. But then he says, sin no more. Let your life change. Come to me and find eternal life, that you may pass from death to life. But this is something else that we also have to gather from this passage is that although we know that Jesus is all-powerful and that he can heal sickness with a single word, oftentimes in his will, he does not heal those with physical sickness and suffering. That ultimately he has provided healing from our sin for all of us that call upon his name as Lord and Savior. But we also realize that because we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world, we are not guaranteed the absence of pain and suffering. And that oftentimes, more than none, that Jesus uses suffering and sickness to glorify himself here on earth. That sickness and suffering in our lives oftentimes is used as a witness to the gospel, that we can see individuals who have been given a terrible diagnosis, who are experiencing suffering and on the edge of death, and yet their witness is that their joy and hope remains in the Lord. That no matter what the circumstances of life throw at them, that they will not sway from their faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. C.S. Lewis once wrote in a book called The Problem of Pain, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so if you are suffering this morning, realize that oftentimes God has a plan for you that sometimes we cannot see, that your suffering is meant for his good and his glory. 
and that others are going to look at your life and they're going to see how you handle those situations and they're going to see the light of the gospel permeating through your life because of the way that you suffer and you suffer well. But as Christians, we also continue to pray for physical healing. We know that God is capable of healing. And so we believe and understand that Jesus is omnipotent and that he has the power to heal. But we also must trust that his will is best and that often his suffering or that our suffering is used for his glory. Fourthly, we see the authority and deity of Jesus. This man is healed and the the Jews and the religious leaders see this healing and rather than rejoicing in the healing, they get caught up in the traditions and rules that they have set and they begin to oppose and persecute Jesus. They hear that he's healed and they hear that it's occurred on the Sabbath and so they get focused on the latter. They get focused on the fact that they're breaking his, their rules and traditions. And so we see that we were given the Sabbath for a day of rest to, to worship the Lord, but yet the Jews add on to that Sabbath. They continue to add rules and traditions that keep people from doing certain things. And the reason why is oftentimes our sinful hearts want rules instead of grace. We want to do things that we can earn rather than be given. We'd rather earn things than receive them. And so our human tendency leads us to desire to do everything on our own, to create this list-keeping Christianity that is so far removed from the grace of the gospel. But not only does he break the Sabbath, he goes even further. He says, I am, I, my father is working until now, and I am working. He is saying this, I am able to work because I am equal with God. I am the son of God. Jesus claims sonship. He says, my father. And the Jewish leaders immediately understand what he is claiming. He is claiming that he has authority and that he is deity, that he is the son of God. And so the Jews have this problem. They have this issue of will they submit to the authority of Jesus or will they continue to trust in their rules and regulations and focus on their will instead of God's? So we see throughout this passage the omniscience of our Savior, the compassionate grace of our Savior, the omnipotence of our Savior, and the authority and deity of our Savior. And so as we get ready to conclude, I have one question that we must all ask ourselves in this room this morning. And the question is this, do we want to be healed? Do we really want to be healed? Do we really want to experience the life-changing grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we really want to turn from sin and be forgiven in him and made new? Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? Do you really seek healing? And oftentimes with our lips we say we do, but with our lives we don't. Oftentimes we say that we want to be changed. We say we want to be forgiven. We say we want to turn from sin, but yet we find ourselves falling back into temptation over and over and over again. And so Jesus asks you today, do you want to be healed? He knows the exact situation that you're in today. And he extends his compassionate grace and power to each of us in this room. He offers eternal life. He's not just offering physical healing. He's offering spiritual healing. He is offering eternity with him from judgment to life. And so I beg you this morning to stop making excuses. Stop blaming others for your problems. Stop feeling hopeless. Stop feeling like you can't be healed. And instead, turn to Christ. Answer yes to the question of whether you want to be healed. 
We gather this morning that we have to know that we acknowledge our need for healing. We must acknowledge that we have something broken within us. And then we have to acknowledge that we can't heal ourselves, that we can't go to Google, we can't make a list, we can't make rules and regulations to provide that healing for us. And then last, we look to Christ to heal us. We look to the one who has power and grace to accomplish what we need in our lives. And so if you're a Christian this morning, if you've already accepted that healing, then the challenge for us is that we continue in that healing, that we continue to ask ourselves if we want to be healed, that we continue to allow Jesus to save us, not only save us, but to sanctify us, to make us more like his son, to cleanse us and to purify us from sin, to be made new. We must continue to draw on Christ's healing power and grace in our Christian walk and as we progress in it. We cannot look to legalistic rules or list-keeping Christianity to allow us to live a life of approval in God's eyes. Instead, we look to the cross. We look to the resurrection. We look to the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Titus 2, 11 to 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." The gospel this morning can save you. The message of Jesus Christ on the cross, resurrected, offers healing power that you cannot find anywhere else. And it offers sanctification as well. It offers you the opportunity to look to God's grace, to bring salvation and train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to him. And so if you're in your brokenness this morning, if you're still in a sinful state in your difficulties, come to Jesus and receive the healing that he offers you freely this morning. And if you are a Christian this morning, then I challenge you to continue to look to that healing, to continue to be a light for the gospel, that in the midst of suffering and sickness and pain and difficulties, that you would shine a light for the gospel to all those that you come in contact with. May we leave here this morning, experience the joy and hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Please join me in prayer. Father, we stand in awe of you this morning. God, that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die on a cross, to take a death that we deserve, to live a sinless life so that we can have a relationship with you. And so, God, my challenge this morning for each of us and me as well is that we would ask ourselves the question, do we want to be healed? Do we really want to turn from sin to the Savior? God, give us the grace to do that. Give us the knowledge of your word. Help us to look to your power, to your ability, to your omniscience, to your authority, and to your deity. God, may we leave here changed. May we glorify and honor you in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.